Okay, friends, it's time for our scripture reading, which this morning is from the book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. I'm going to read verses, only verses 1 and 2. And before I do that, let me just uh, give you a brief introduction. Uh, we're starting a new series um, this morning through the letter of 1 Peter. And the reason we're doing this is because something that I am deeply convinced of, I am persuaded of, is that the church today in modern Western culture desperately needs to recover or maybe even for the first time develop for itself a very strong theology of suffering. We live in what people call a post-Christian culture. What we mean by that is not that, look, uh, you know, 50 years or 100 years ago, everybody was a Christian. That's not what we mean by that because uh, the vast majority, actually, of, you know, citizens of Canada, anyway, have not been Christian for the duration of the, uh, for the life of, of our country. So there's never been a time when our country was a so-called Christian country. What we mean by being post-Christian is that there was a time in our history, in the Western culture, uh, when uh, the, the values that Western people share, uh, had were, were commonly shared with one another and were rooted primarily in what's called the Judeo-Christian tradition. That is, the, the things that mattered to us as a culture, things like uh, uh, human dignity, things like universal human rights, even things like representative government, etc. These things were actually born out of the Christian tradition and adopted by our culture. And uh, we had this sort of shared cultural uh, belief about what was right and what was wrong and what was good and what was bad. And it made us able to get along quite well and be able to produce, by God's grace, a, a relatively wealthy, stable, healthy society. However, that common bond that we have shared for numerous centuries is, is starting to fray. There's cracks in it. And so increasingly, uh, there is a division between the values of Christians, Bible-believing Christians, and the secular culture that we find ourselves living in, to the point where many of the things that you might believe to be true and important and good are no longer seen to be true or important or good by the culture in which we live. And so, it is my belief that for the next while, it's going to get harder and harder to be or to live as a Bible-believing Christian in our modern Western society. Many of the things that we believe are increasingly being thought of as naive or outdated or even dangerous, frankly. And so it's going to be hard to be a Christian in Canada, in the West, over the next while in the 21st century. And we're not used to that. Most of us aren't used to that at all. This is a relatively new phenomenon. Even though Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. 
And the Apostle John, in his letter, his first letter, he said, look, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Meaning, listen, Christian ideas have always been unpopular and they will always be unpopular to an unconverted, unbelieving world. So don't be surprised at that. And yet, we often are. What do you mean you don't like me? I'm a good neighbor. All because I have traditional views about human sexuality, now you don't like me, now I'm dangerous, now I'm a problem, what's up with that? We're surprised to be told that we don't line up with mainstream cultural beliefs because we've been part of the mainstream of the culture for so long. And so what we're going to do is we're going to wrestle with how to live as Bible-believing, robust Christians in a culture that is increasingly becoming a little bit resentful of the things that we believe and hold on to. And this, this is why we're going to look at 1 Peter together, because uh, 1 Peter speaks to that issue uh, very directly. Uh, it gives a lot of practical wisdom for how Christians are to operate in a cultural environment that seems to be hostile to what you believe. Now, this is going to take a while. Um, we're going to study it for a while, and kind of like what we did with the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to take as long as it takes to get through First Peter. So you can think of this as like a really long Bible study uh, that we're going to do together. I'm a little, I have to admit, I'm a little nervous because I know there's a lot of women in this room who know a lot about First Peter because you already went through your long Bible study of 1 Peter last year with Jessica, um, and maybe I'll just have to ask you guys for some tips and information uh, in, in the coffee room on Sundays just to make sure that I'm getting things right. Um, but we're going to study this uh, together. And today, I, I, I really have a very simple uh, Goal, And that is, first of all, to introduce the letter to you, kind of give you the background information, and then look at one word. And that word, and the importance of that one word, uh, in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. So let me read the passage together, and then we'll get to work. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Peter, what can I say by way of introduction? Well, first of all, it was written by Peter, one of the apostles. Now, there's a bit of speculation, actually, about whether or not Peter wrote Peter because um, it's got quite polished Greek. Uh, it's a sophisticated Greek, which, uh, because Peter was a fisherman from Galilee, uh, scholars say, you know, he probably wasn't able to write uh, at this level, but if you look at verse 12 of 1 Peter 5, so chapter 5, verse 12, it says, with the help of Silas, 
whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, etc., etc., etc. Probably Silas, in some translations, used the word Silvanus, uh, was a, a scribe who wrote down what Peter told him to read, and he was the Silas that was friends uh, and an accompaniment uh, of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. He probably had a, a, a strong grasp of literary Greek that Peter didn't have, and that's why we see this polished Greek. But who was Peter? For those of you who maybe don't know uh, who Peter was, he was one of Jesus' first disciples, one of the twelve. In fact, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. Within the first twelve that Jesus called as his disciples, he had three that were sort of the inner circle. They were closest to him. So Peter was one of those. Peter, James, and John were those three brothers, and or sorry, disciples. And he spent three years with Jesus. He was with Jesus that whole time that Jesus was ministering right up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And you'll notice the letter uh, alludes to that because Peter describes uh, events and and, and experiences that he and the other inner circle guys had that maybe the other 12 didn't have. For example, the the, um, transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He also talks about other things like uh, what what was happening in the upper room during the Lord's Supper, Uh, And he talks about uh, personal instruction that Jesus gave to Peter and, of course, describes Jesus' preaching ministry. He does that throughout the letter. And so Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. You could put it that way. They were tight. And Peter, as a character, is rather likable. You know, he's, he's one of those biblical characters that people are drawn to because he seems a lot like us. He's a regular kind of guy. He's a, a blue-collar kind of guy. You think of the Apostle Paul and you think of this erudite scholar, you know, he probably wore tweed jackets and bow ties and was a little bit stuffy maybe. That's what you think of, of him when you, when you think of the Apostle Peter. Not or Paul, not Peter. Peter was, you know, jeans and a Carhartt t-shirt kind of guy. Although, actually, now that I think about it, probably not a Carhartt t-shirt because I don't know if you know this, Carhartt is now like a cool brand. I got to admit, you know, when, when I was young, Carhartt was what you like wore to work. Carhartt is what the people who didn't have any interest in style or anything like that wore. Now, I have a Carhartt toque, okay? So maybe Peter didn't wear a lot of Carhartt. Maybe he just wore, you know, just a no-frills no Gildan or Gildan t-shirt. Regardless, he was, he was blue-collar. And what we like about Peter is that we can identify with him because he screws up a lot in the stories in the Gospels. He's kind of got a big mouth. Uh, he, he can be very impulsive and say things and do things that he shouldn't do. He loses his temper like many of us do. And in fact, the letter of Peter here is is a lot like the character of Peter. He's very down to earth. And it was probably written during the time of Nero, uh, Emperor Nero, who ruled uh, between 54 and 68 AD. In uh, chapter 4, verse 12, we get these interesting words that Peter writes. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal 
that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Some scholars like to say that that is a a vague reference to a practice of Emperor Nero to take Christians and other enemies and uh, dip them in oil and then stick them on a pole and light them on fire to be human torches in his gardens in Rome. Really nice guy, this Nero, clearly. Uh, but probably that's not the ref- uh, a reference to that. That's what's happening because Peter is likely describing in the letter not the the outright harsh persecution that Christians were going to experience later, but what you could call and has been called sort of soft persecution or oppression or soft totalitarianism. He's writing to Christians who are bewildered by this constant feeling of being singled out for their beliefs and being derided and discriminated against because of their faith. And the pagans around that they lived around and the Jews that they were living around were treating them in this negative fashion. In this area that Peter describes where they, where they live, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are northern parts of what is now part of modern-day Turkey. And during Peter's day, what, what was known as the imperial cult was very, very strong in these parts of the Roman Empire. The imperial cult basically taught that um, the emperor was the son of God and was divine, and so were his, his family, and uh, the Roman citizens were called to worship him as the son of God. And of course, the Christians refused to do that because they said, no, there's only one son of God, and that son of God is Jesus Christ. And so they would be excluded in the public life of much of what was happening in their towns and villages in which they lived. They could have been excluded from family events. They, they could have been excluded from different social uh, activities and, and uh, various festivals that were going on in the empire. And so they didn't get to have fun with everybody because they were different. And they would be harassed a lot. And so encouragement in the midst of suffering is a very important theme in the letter of 1 Peter. In fact, actually, um, 30% of all the New Testament references to suffering come from this letter. So it has an outsized sort of uh, interest in the issue of Christians suffering because of their faith. And remember, this isn't, we're not talking about outright persecution that would at that time have been sort of sporadic and then intense, right? So you're just going along living your life and then all of a sudden there's sort of a, a, a like the pogroms that the, the Jews in Russia had to experience. You're just living your life in your village and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a flare-up of persecution that you and your people are experiencing and then it dies down for a little while. That's probably not the circumstances that they were feeling. They were being frozen out of public life on a regular basis, kind of like many Christians experience in some Muslim-majority countries today, where, where because you're not Muslim, you don't have access to public life the way a regular Muslim citizen would. And how Peter addresses these Christians under these circumstances is quite, quite fascinating, because even though suffering itself is a pretty big theme, it's not just suffering on its own that 
has Peter's attention. No, it's finding glory through suffering. See, Peter's going to give us in this this letter a a rather unique perspective on suffering, one that that you will not find in many of the other great religions of the world or, or philosophical traditions. There's really three ways that people tend to deal with suffering, either philosophically or sort of existentially, meaning philosophical means this is how I, how I think about it in my head and try to make sense of it. Existentially means this is how I actually deal with it on the ground in my life. This is how it affects me personally, okay? And those two things aren't always the same. There's lots of people who think one way and behave a very different way when the chips are down, right? But there's basically three options that you see in the world. The first is a fatalistic kind of approach to suffering. Fatalistic approach to suffering. There's nothing that can be done about it. All you can do is kind of endure. You know, you see it, you experience it, you have a stiff upper lip in the midst of it, you kind of are stoic about it. And this is a common approach to a lot of people from a variety of traditions down through the generations. Some of you might know people in your own lives or maybe in your own home right now who take this kind of approach to their suffering. They say, hey, It is what it is. No sense crying about it. Just put your head down, endure, push through it. That's one way you can deal with suffering. You can also deal with suffering in kind of a masochistic way, and this is very interesting. People sometimes derive a certain sense of identity from their suffering, as though their identity as a sufferer, as a victim, kind of encapsulates everything about who they are. And so they look at life through their suffering, and in a weird kind of strange way, they almost appreciate and, and are happy to have the suffering because it's so closely connected to who they are as a person. And that's why I call it kind of masochistic. There's a sense of pleasure that comes from wallowing in your suffering. Maybe you know people who are kind of like that. Who they, they look at everything through the lens of their suffering and their sense that they are a victim of, of circumstances outside themselves. And, and there's a lot of woe is me, but it doesn't look like there's a lot of how do I deal with me being in woe. I just kind of continue to woe. And I want you to woe with me. And we'll woe together. And woe for me as well. That's the second way. Third way is kind of the escapist way. And that is to say, all suffering is wrong. All suffering is virtually undeserved. And therefore, all suffering must be avoided at all costs and ended, if I'm going to experience it, as quickly as possible. And so, the way that we deal with our suffering is we, we of course, we avoid it as much as possible through distraction. I'm going through a hard time, I'm experiencing difficulty, and so I plop the laptop on my lap, and I hit Netflix, and I just allow the next automatic next episode to go, and I totally zone out and, and ignore it. Or I suppress it through seeking pleasure 
right? I try to make sure that my, my joys and my pleasures outweigh my pains and my sorrows, and that way I can sort of make my way through life. Or maybe what I do is, is I, I suppress it through substance use or addictions of some sort. It could be uh, to pornography, it could be to gambling, it could be to substances, it could be to a whole host of things. But the point is, I don't actually attempt to walk through suffering and try to understand something about myself in the midst of suffering, I try my very best to, as soon as I experience a bit of suffering, back off, run away from it, and hope that it doesn't follow me. Those are sort of the three main ways. And by the way, you know, this escapist version, religious people do this too. This isn't just a secular version. Well, religious people do all of them, but I want to point out that a really interesting version of the escapist attempt to deal with suffering is what's often described as the prosperity gospel. So if you're suffering, it must mean that you're not believing the promises of God, you have not claimed the promises of God, you're maybe holding on to some kind of sin, and God is punishing you, and if you would just uh, claim the promises of God and pray harder, God will turn your suffering into prosperity. And so you don't have to go through it. You can, you can short-circuit it and overcome it quickly and return to a life that God actually has in store for you, which is a life of great joy and satisfaction and bliss, even on this earth, for the vast majority of the time you live it, any bits of suffering are just incidental, and they're blips in God's actual will for your life, which is unfettered joy and prosperity. Okay, what does Peter do with these? He says, none of them are the way that we deal with suffering as true followers of Jesus Christ. He says, we need to understand that the way of suffering is the way of a Christian because the way of suffering is the way of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, something has happened to you that is unique. You have been what theologians called united to him. You have been bound to him. You have been bonded to him. It's a mysterious, beautiful wonderful experience that Christians undergo when they come to faith in Jesus and trust in him as their savior. They become bound to him. But here's the thing. When you're united to Jesus, what that means is, is that his life is now your life. The things that he experiences are now the things that you will experience. That, that, that what has happened to him actually happens to you spiritually. You can expect to suffer because Jesus, your savior, suffered. Yay! But, here's the thing, that suffering is actually the way to glory. That's Peter's point. Sixteen times in this letter we're going to see either the noun form or the verb form of a word called doxa, which means glory. We get our word doxology from it. To glorify God, to sing a doxology is to praise Him, to glorify Him. And what we're going to see in this letter is that Peter has a radical understanding of the place of suffering to achieve glory in you and me as followers of Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, again, this is outside of our text, but I'll, I'll, we'll get to it in a couple weeks. 
In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Listen to this. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is a very radical way of understanding the place of suffering in our lives. You know, you know that phrase, uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes it stronger, makes you stronger, sorry? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, live a little longer. I'm making up these words now, but Kelly Clarkson, you know, you know, Kelly Clarkson, the great wise teacher of our age. It actually comes from Nietzsche, believe it or not. <laughs> She stole it from Nietzsche. Peter is not saying, look, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He's saying whatever suffering you face makes you more glorious. And we're going to explore what that means in coming weeks. What does it mean for us through suffering to be glorious? Okay? So this is the introduction. Introduction to the letter of Peter that we're going to look at together. Now what I want to do is I want to just drill down and focus our attention on one word that is super important for understanding the perspective Peter has on all the things, or he's coming from, on all the things he's going to teach us over the coming weeks. Look at verse 1. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You know the word I'm thinking about, right? Exiles. Haha, <laughs> you thought elect. <laughs> we're going to talk about that word next week. This week, we're going to look at this word, exiles. Other translations use the word for exiles. They use the word alien, stranger, sojourner, because they're all trying to capture Peter's point, which is this. You're not from here. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not from here. Now, this would have been rather shocking to some of these people to read this because these are Greek Christians who are born in these provinces uh, that Peter mentions, and they are raised in these provinces. Uh, they all live here. They're, they're what you would call indigenous people or, or people native to that area, right? Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. And yet Peter tells them, you're not what you think you are. You think you are a native Cappadocian. You're not. You think you're an indigenous Bithynian. You're not. Peter says you're not actually from here. And you don't really belong here. And this is a key to understanding his perspective on, on how to deal with suffering and how to deal with opposition in hard places. There's several ways that people try to relate to the culture around them in the place that they live. Christians can adopt several ways. One is you can, you can adopt the perspective of a tourist, right? You don't want to live. When you go to visit a country, well, maybe you do, but when you go visit a country as a tourist, you don't expect to live there. You're just passing through. You're just visiting. You don't, you don't connect personally to the place. You don't invisit, uh, uh, invest in the place. You go and visit the sites, you go and look at the cool stuff. You try out some of the culture at uh, various restaurants or, or in some of the shops around and that kind of thing. But you don't invest in the actual 
political or social or cultural life of that place because you're just passing through. And there are many Christians who look at the world and they say, look, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. And so we preach the gospel, we try to tell people about Jesus, hope that they trust in him, and then they, they don't have to go with everybody else uh, in the handbasket. They get pulled out of the handbasket and they get saved. And that's, that's how a Christian ought to uh, relate to the world. This, this world isn't our home, so we don't worry about politics and, and involving ourselves in social justice and that kind of stuff or, or caring too much about the environment because the whole thing's going to burn up in the end anyway. So we just preach the gospel and get out as many people out of here as we can. Some Christians do behave that way. I don't suspect that that's our number one problem, though. I mean, at least that perspective preaches the gospel and takes the gospel of salvation seriously. I would say it's a truncated gospel. It doesn't understand the cosmic scope of Christ's redemption. Fine, but at least there's an, an, an urgency to inviting people to enter a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Got to give them that at least. I'm more worried about another way that Christians can uh, relate to the contra- uh, culture around them, and that is as an immigrant. See, an immigrant comes to a new place and says, I want to make this place my home. Christians can do this in their world very easily. They, they, they leverage their resources to make their lives on this earth as comfortable as possible. And so they obsess over things like their career, getting the right one, making enough money in it, building the right kind of reputation uh, that I want from it. They invest uh, in, in all the things that they could have here, thinking that those things are so absolutely important for their lives. They, they obsess over getting married, or they get obsessed over having children, or they obsess over being able to buy a house. I can't, I can't open the Globe and Mail. I get the Globe and Mail on weekends. I cannot open that newspaper without another story about Gen Z being overwhelmed by the prospect of never being able to own a house. As if that is the be-all and end-all of life in Canada. Spoken like a true homeowner. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) These things are good and okay. They're great. Get married, have kids, buy a house. Yes, do it. If you can. But listen. When you make your focus building a life in this world to the exclusion of remembering that you are an exile, Christian. You are a citizen of another world. You're building a kingdom that knits you to this place, and that is a dangerous thing. You know, C.S. Lewis never says anything wrong. (laughs) Okay, a couple things, but This thing he said is not wrong. He said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He thinks he is finding his place in it. But really, it's finding its place in him. Friends, Peter is calling us not to be tourists or immigrants. He's calling us to be exiles. An exile knows 
that this home that they're in is a good home that they should work hard to cultivate, but it is not their ultimate home. Their ultimate home is elsewhere. You're making a temporary home here. And so don't get too attached. Sure, go ahead, buy a house. Go ahead, start a family. Go ahead, participate in society. Get involved in in political life. Get involved in economic life. Get involved in, in social life. Seek to relieve suffering. Seek to promote social justice. Yes, 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 yes. But when you think about the future, you remember that This is not your ultimate home. And so you don't assimilate. You get involved in politics, you get involved in volunteering in uh, ministries that help the common good. You do these things for the good of the city, yes. And you do them remembering that ultimately your home is not on earth, but it is in heaven. You're a stranger here, and so you don't quite fit in. As a volunteer, as a politician, as a business person, as a parent, as a sports team coach, as a colleague at work, you don't ever quite fit in. You know why? Because the priorities and the values and the the things that matter most in life to you don't line up with everybody else's. Have you ever heard this saying, they who dance are thought mad by those who cannot hear the music? That's Nietzsche again. Smart atheist, that Nietzsche. What he's saying, have you ever seen that? You ever seen someone, I love this, okay? Walking down, I had this this past summer. AirPods in a long-haired person, guy or girl, can't see them, right? I'm I'm driving down King Street, and I see this guy just bopping his way down the street, right? He's just doing moves and spins and big smile on his face and stuff like that. I can't hear his music. I'm thinking, you're nuts. I can't hear his music. Any kids, you guys ever walk in on your, your sibling and they got the headphones in in their bedroom and, and you like sneak the door open and you see them, they're dancing in front of the mirror and they're like singing into their hairbrush or something like that and you're like, hee hee hee, they look so silly and dumb. That's because you're not getting the rhythm. They're in the rhythm. They're listening to the music. You don't hear it. Peter's point is, if you're a Christian, that's you in this world, because you're not home. You know, my mom immigrated to this country in her 30s from the Netherlands, and she loved Canada, but she was pretty Dutch the whole time she lived here. She just had these habits and this way of talking about Europe as though everything there was just a little bit better. You know, yeah, the clothing here is made pretty well, but you know, not as good as in the Netherlands. I don't have my glasses. She would, we would go shopping and she'd take her glasses off and she'd stick the end of her glasses in her, in her mouth and then she'd go like this, looking at fabric and always thinking it's not quite as good as back home in the Netherlands. Meanwhile, it's all made in China or Malaysia, but It was better in Europe because she never entirely assimilated. Friends, 
Think about your Savior, okay? If you're a Christian, think about him. Jesus came into this world as our Savior to show us the love of our God. And he taught us the way of God. And so often people didn't understand him because he was dancing to a music that they couldn't understand. That they didn't hear. That they didn't want to hear, you see? And he became the ultimate exile. He came to his own people and John says they didn't want him. The religious leaders rejected him. His own family opposed him. Foxes and birds had more of a home on this earth than its creator did. And over and over and over, the Apostle Paul is going to, or Peter is going to compare our identity and experience with that of our Savior Jesus. Because Jesus suffered for you and died for you so that and was raised for you and was glorified for you so that your suffering is not something that you simply endure with a stiff upper lip. It's not something that you find your identity in and, and sip the cup of bitterness all your life. It's not the kind of thing that you try to escape and dis, just push away. No, no, no. You use it and you let God use it in your life to turn you into something beautiful. We have no idea how beautiful our Savior really is. One day when we see him, as John says, we'll see him as he is with unveiled faces for who he really is in all his glory and his majesty. We are going to melt. But you know what? One day we're going to see each other like this too. I never thought of a good way to end this sermon. But I like that, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this study of Peter, Peter's letter, give us eyes to see what we need to see. Give us ears to hear what we need to hear. Give us wills to be shaped how they need to be shaped and character to be grown how it needs to be grown. We look forward to this, O oh Lord, you working in us and through us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.